Hey, good morning, everyone. Isn't this fun? I have a friend of mine, that's what he says all the time. Boy, isn't this fun? We get to do this. It is absolutely wonderful. We get to live this life the way we live it, and uh, sometimes we even get paid for it. It's awesome. Well, it's good to see you all this morning, and good to have you all joining us online. We appreciate you joining with us. It's always a blessing to have you. Um, but we do need to take care of quite a few housekeeping rules. Uh, rules. <laughs> Not housekeeping rules, housekeeping things that I just want to go over with you. For those of you that have been with us for a long time, these will be somewhat um, routine for you, but I feel like I need to address them anyway. And one of those is um, I hope that as anyone new comes into the building and is a part of anything that we have going on is that you go out of your way to welcome them. Uh, Pastor Ham just mentioned that as we're doing our singing there, but I hope you'll be the person who says, I don't know who that person is over there, and, and take the time to make a beeline for them either before or after the service. We don't want anybody ever to feel like they're not overly welcome here as a part of the church family. Right? We can't call ourselves a family and exclude anybody. And uh, I'm thinking about this because not only has it been brought to my attention at times, but also because Debbie and I spent some time when I was out in July, we went to other churches, and I may have brought this up to you, but maybe it's, I don't remember. Um, other than the pastor, really nobody said anything to us, and uh, that's kind of hurtful. It's challenging. I don't think people do that intentionally. I think some people are just shy. I think they just don't think about it, uh, but that's why I'm bringing it up is because I want us to always be the people who are very different in this way, that we let people know we're just glad you're here. And if they've been coming for the last 30 years and you don't know them, then just admit that. It's okay. I remember that one time when I was teaching Sunday school in Lynchburg years ago, uh, I welcomed someone, a couple, into the class and come to find out they were one of the major contributors to the church for years. And they, I just... I didn't know it. I don't know that they came back to our class <laughs> because of that. But, but I learned from that. It doesn't matter if you don't know whether a person's been here or not. Go to them anyway and just ask them how they're doing. If, if nothing else, if you can't think of anything else to do other than just stand there in front of them and smile, then do that. Okay? But just let them know you acknowledge them. It's just important. Now, hopefully that look won't be, why are you here? kind of thing, <laughs> but that you're actually glad that they're here. All right, so we need to just remind ourselves of that. Now, the other thing is, I mentioned this, these things last week, but I want to talk through them a little bit because there may be somebody online that's not aware of what's going on here a little bit. Um, ladies Bible study, uh, there is a Tuesday night study that's just started a new study. It's not that the ladies are new meeting, but it's a new study, and it's from Titus 2 about mentoring young women. Now, as you look in our congregation, we have some young ladies here. Uh, some of you may say, oh, I don't know that there's anybody here to mentor, or gosh, I can't be a mentor. Well, hello. That's what the study's all about. See, So we come to these things to learn how to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Titus 2 is very, very valuable in helping you, older women, to teach younger women. That's what Paul is telling Titus. And so uh, please come to that. I know the ladies, they had like 10 ladies last week. And so you'll be blessed by that. I want to make sure that you know about that. Now, some people have said, what is Awana? I see that. I see it on your sign out there. I don't know what that is. 
And for those of us that have been doing this for many, many years, it's very familiar to us. But if it's not to you, it stands for approved workmen are not ashamed. It comes from 2 Timothy 2.15. If you're an Awana person, you know that. Uh, but it is a it was basically started as an evangelistic tool by a guy named Art Rohrheim. And even we, Debbie and I, had a friend of ours that was a part of all that startup in Chicago many, many years ago to reach families. And the goal was to first reach kids because they knew if we reach kids with the Bible and with the gospel message, then parents are going to want to know what their kids are learning, right? And part of the curriculum is to sit, not only to play games, that was part of the draw for the kids, and so that's a big part of it, uh, but also to help them learn scripture. And so as the parent is sitting there listening to them recite memory verses and the parent doesn't know Christ, then guess what's going to happen? They're going to start being introduced to Jesus. And so it's an evangelistic tool. And it's amazing the number of people that do see our sign and call us and ask about that kind of thing. Uh, but if you don't know, that's what it's all about. And that's happening here on Wednesday nights. Uh, and it's a way to bring families and kids into the church. And so my wife has some flyers, actually. If you're willing to take one of those flyers and put it on somebody's windshield in the cover of darkness... 3:30 in the morning, or whatever it might be. No, don't you know? Don't don't do something wrong. You know, I'm just kidding about all this. I feel like I have to say that, but I shouldn't have to say those things, should I? But we're living in such a culture now. I gotta I gotta just say that. But don't do anything wrong. Not advocating that. Uh, but please hand them out to a neighbor or somebody, and then be able to tell them, hey, this is a kids program. This is to help kids learn about scripture and to come to know the Lord. And we want you to come be a part of it. So please, all the information's on there. And so take one of those. Okay. Now, um, on the screen, I think is what you will see is a bunch of dots. (laughs) This is not one of those psychological analytical tests, (laughs) the ink blot test, right? This is uh, what I brought up last week is that we're just trying to get into the 21st century and do a QR code so that we can have a sign-up sheet uh, or list of people who are coming for our Wednesday night dinners. And that Disciples in Action, that's what DIA stands for. That's our Wednesday night classes to help us all to become better disciples of Jesus. We started up our dinners again. We did that this past week. Had a great turnout. And so introduce this QR code. Actually, this is a different one from what we had even on Wednesday night. And it works about that well. <laughs> okay, So we're still in the, uh, right now, it's out of R&D. Okay? QC is going through it right now. If you're in manufacturing, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, but it's still in product development, so to speak. Uh, if you hold up your phone, and I know this may be a challenge for some of you, but if you have a smartphone, look, some people are already doing that, it will see that set of blots, uh, dots there. And it will take you to a thing that will drop down on the top of your screen, touch that, and it will take you to another form. And some of you are going to go, mine works great. Others of you are going to go, mine wants me to edit this form. Others are going to go, mine doesn't work at all. Others say, I don't have a smartphone. And so what do we do about that? We can't come to dinner. Well, be patient with us. We're trying to make things better and make it easier for all of us. Okay. So if it works for you, wonderful. If not, we'll get it working. And uh, this will be the way. They'll be posted around the building. So you we see these dots. You'll go, what is that? Oh, that's that. Really, and I told the Wednesday night group this, that um, really what it is, it's a, it's a direct routing number to our bank account, mine personally. So uh, it's going to work great. And I'm kidding about that too. Okay, I'm really not serious about that either. Again, it's crazy that I have to say that, isn't it? 
So that's a whole other subject. All right, now, fellowship lunch is next week. We've had one of these, and we're so excited to have these back with us again. And so if you haven't been a part of our potluck lunches on the third Sunday, we want to have you come. And that is a great place, and hear me when I'm saying this, that's a great place for you to not just sit with people you know. Hello? And you can go to somebody that you don't know so that they don't come to me and say, I've been a part of the church for a while now, and nobody's said anything to me. And we don't ever want that. And so it's a great opportunity for you to introduce yourself and say, hey, come sit at my table. We'd love to hear all about your life and what God is doing with you. Now, with all that done, uh, we're coming up on the 40 Days for Life. That's something that we've taken part in the past years. If you've been a part of the church, you know that. Haven't done that for a while. We were pretty diligent with that. It's coming up again. And so I want to show you this quick video here that I think is very, very well done. Just pay attention to some of the numbers that they show. The dates are September 22nd through the end of October. Forty Days for Life, our mission is to end abortion peacefully and prayerfully through community outreach, praying and fasting, and having ongoing vigils outside of local abortion facilities. Forty Days is really all about the two great commandments of love. Love God and love neighbor. We are the last line of defense for these women going in. We're saying we will fight for you. Life There's just so much value in being on the sidewalk. There's so much value in sharing our experience with somebody else and allowing the Lord to use it for their good, our good, and His glory. Forty Days for Life has been so successful at truly ending abortion, stopping thousands upon thousands of abortions over the years, helping abortion workers quit, um, helping to shut abortion facilities down. I think we've been successful at that for so many years because we stick to that very simple task. Isn't it considered myself pro-life, but it was once I got involved with 40 Days for Life that really, um, really caused me to make it my own, to, uh, to challenge myself to learn more about 
what abortion was, what the community resources were in our area, and how to truly help women choose life and help families in our community. Why 40 Days for Life is so extra special to us, not taking away from anything else, but why it is so beautiful is because to us, it is truly the purity of the gospel in action. We want to be a part of ending this Holocaust, and we know the battle is won on our knees. 40 Days for Life is about saving lives. Many, many women will say, all I was looking for was a sign from God, and so you could actually be that sign. What precious faces those little kids are, aren't they? Um, anytime we talk about this subject, I want to be very sensitive to those of you that may have experienced this. You may be having somebody in your family. You may have gone through this yourself. Um, can you just know that the Lord loves you and the Lord forgives and is full of grace and mercy? And uh, our goal is not to condemn these women, not to condemn the men. And we stand on the side of the road, if that's what the Lord calls us to do, or we talk to somebody about the horrors of abortion, the goal is not to point our bony finger in their face and condemn them. The point is to be able to open our arms to them and say, Jesus loves you. He's come to give you life, and he's come to give that baby in you life. And we want you to know that and experience the joy of that. And as you heard here, it's beautiful it? as people actually are rescued from that. And little babies are here because of people just like you being willing to go and, and do whatever's necessary in a loving way to show Christ. And so we always want to be sensitive to that. So don't feel any condemnation from us or from anybody here. If that's you and you've been through that, just know that the Lord loves you and he can restore. Okay, so the final thing we want to do here before we just get in a couple thoughts for the message this morning is that um, last week I mentioned to you that the elders have been meeting and we've been talking about the needs that we have. And uh, many of you have had questions. Uh, many of you have had good comments for us. Uh, lots of things that we need to think about. And so we are just saying to you once again, please just begin this process of looking for people through prayer. Some have said, I can do this, I can do that, and that's wonderful. It's always best to have volunteers. Some have said, we need job descriptions. We, we understand those things. Uh, thank you for your thoughts. Please give us your thoughts. We want to be a family in all of this, uh, but we want to pray about these things. And so Brother Danny's going to come. Danny is one of our elders. I'm an elder. Pastor Scott Honecker is an elder. He's down with the uh, Spanish group right now. And then um, Pastor Hamp is one of our elders as well. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, who are the elders? I don't know who they are. And so some of this, what may sound redundant for many of you, is not for others who are new to us. And so it's important that you know this. So Brother Danny, why don't you come and just pray again, if you would, um, for these things particularly. Uh, two nursery workers is what I mentioned. Now let me just clarify. Sorry, Danny, before you come. And that is, when, I, when we're saying two, we're saying if we have to pay people to sit in the nursery, we're going to need a minimum of two people. Okay, that's where that came from. Someone said to me last week, well, if we're volunteering, we're going to need a lot more than two people because we can't do every service, and that's correct. We're going to need eight to ten people probably on a rotational basis. And as Hamp and I were talking this week, 
if everyone would just volunteer a week, you might not have to be in there but once a quarter or less and making it easier on everybody. Okay, so that's what the clarification is for that. I know you may still have questions. That's okay. That's fine. Bring them to us. Children's ministry director, we've had some interest in that. Praise the Lord. Someone to come along pastor, beside Pastor Scott. Someone asked me this week, does that mean we're looking for a youth pastor? Could be. We don't know. That's what we're praying about. Um, I know Pastor Scott has said to us as elders where he's feeling more of a, a call for the Hispanic group, and that's where he is downstairs right now, as I mentioned. Um, does that mean that we need a youth pastor? In all likelihood, it could. Um, Scott has been a volunteer all these years. We've not paid him anything except for some uh, graciousness over the years, but uh, he's not a paid staff employee, and so he's really worked his fingers to the bone in the past, but now God is doing some different things with him. Uh, still wants to stay connected in that way. That's why he's willing to stay as a Sunday school teacher, uh, but he really needs help in many other ways with, with the youth. Uh, then there's the 20-something group that we mentioned last week. We're praying that God would give us people to help serve that age group. And then someone or someone's, maybe even a team for social media kind of thing. So Pastor Bruce doesn't have to stand up here and show you a bunch of ink blots and say it may work because he's had time this week to do a little bit with it and got my son in Harrisonburg sitting in the library while he's trying to do his studies to show me how to do this over Zoom. We need people to help us with this, if you get the point. I don't mind doing those things. I have a programming background. Uh, But collectively, we should have people doing these things for us if we're going to reach people with the gospel. And that's the goal, right? The goal is not to just look like the church down the block. The goal is to be effective in ministry so that there's a place for people to come to after you and I are not here so that we can reach people with the eternal gospel. And all these things are necessary as we try to do that. Okay, so Brother Danny, if you'll come and just pray for a few moments over these things and say whatever you want to say, that'd be great. Oh, you may need a microphone if you want to say something. Can you grab that blue one over there? Can he use the blue one there, Christy? Just hold it down. It, just hold it down. The bottom, sorry. <laughs> she'll, she'll get it. I just want to say a few things before we pray, and I uh, just ask that you all join us as elders in in prayer that God would raise up people that are willing to serve and. I just want to encourage you to, to pray and uh, understand, you know, God is not so much concerned about your abilities but your willingness. And I, I struggle with that all the time myself. But, you know, if you uh, if you allow, Satan will just run you over with your lack of ability and uh, what you don't have. But, you know, we serve a God that, that does have what we need. And so if we come with our willingness, he can use and small things are great things. And so just prayerfully consider if God would have you to do something in, in one of the ministries that, that Bruce talked about. And I read a verse in uh, Matthew chapter 21 this morning about a father that asked his two sons to work in the vineyard and one agreed and said he would work in the vineyard and one said he would not. And the one that said he would not, he went away and repented and came back. And the one that said he would went away and didn't come back. 
So the only reason I say that, just prayerfully consider, you know, and see how God leads you in, in whatever small or great way that, that, that uh, he may want to use you in. So if you would join me, let's, let's pray. If you pray along with me for workers. Uh, Father, we just come to you this day, and we lift you up. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, thank you for your uh, grace and mercy. And, uh, Lord, your grace that's so undeserved. And I, I just pray now that you would lift up workers, uh, Lord, to fill the ministries and the needs that we see. And, Lord, that we seek to, to reach out to those in our community, those our neighbors, those around us, Lord. And we'll be able to meet the needs of those that come and that, that your word would be taught here and and the truth of the word of God, your word, Lord, would be upheld here and, and spoken in truth. And, and uh, Lord, just that we would hold fast to the truth that's in it. Lord, we just uh, lift it up to you. We thank you for your love for us. Pray you bless our service today. And, Lord, I just pray that our, our hearts would, and our minds would be still. We would hear what you would have to say to us. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you, Brother Danny. Appreciate that very much. Yeah, we want to be diligent in our time of prayer. So you might want to add these things to your own prayer list, if you will, this week. We want to be a praying church, uh, people who take these things to the Lord. So thank you so much. All right, so let's turn our attention now uh, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. And we are in verses 2 through 4. And so uh, if you'll stand with me and shake off the dust here for a second. You've been sitting for a few minutes. Uh, we're going to be brief this morning. Uh, I just want to cover a couple things here in this list of names. So picking up in verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. All right, amen. You may be seated. This is a this message this morning is a part two of what we started last time as we talked about from verse one the first workers in the field of souls. It's always interesting to me how the Lord has purposefully written down the names of these men for us to remember. Men who are just like you and me. Uh, and I'm saying that term generically, of course, uh, but people who just lived life. And we saw the abundance of that life in the beginning, at least the calling. In fact, last time we looked specifically at just that. I started our message, our time out with the thought that the Lord was commissioning the 12 and then giving them the ability to impact the world. And you saw all that right in verse 1. And so those were the two primary points. There was the commissioning first and then a brief description of the impact through the power that the Lord would give them in the, in the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember that message and you were here, then the other sub-points to that were, first of all, if you're going to be used by God, you have to know that God has touched your heart. In other words, you've got to know that he's awakened you. You've had to have had the Spirit of God share with you the need that you have for the gospel. That is the 
Christ's substitutionary death for you, that your sins will send you to hell because God is holy, not because he doesn't love you, but because God is holy and he's not going to violate his holiness. And so sin has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for. And so it all starts right there. And then secondly, there comes after the spiritual awakening, this commissioning to follow. The Lord never says, I want to save you and I'll just set you over here in eternity. He never does that. He saves you and then he says, now I want you to serve me. Now go do it. And he equips us with various means to do so. And all that's written for us in scripture that we talk about over time. Okay, so that's where we were. Some of you last week, as I already mentioned in the announcement time, have come and said, yeah, I'd be willing to help with this. And you said, I'd be willing to pray for this. Some of you took flowers last week off of the podium and went to houses and and gave them to some shut-ins. Praise the Lord for that. That's wonderful. There is no right or wrong about serving. It's the, it's the attitude of the heart that says, I want to serve God and I'll go and do whatever I have in front of me at the moment. And so all of that's been a great, great response to the message last week. Um, and so we need to hear these things. Now today, what I want to do just very briefly is I want to just look at the, f- the first four men. I don't know that I'm even going to go through the rest of the men I think you can do that on your own. I think you can do a little bit of studying on your own and uh, look into the lives. There's uh, very little known about them, quite honestly. I could draw out a lot just because I like to talk, but uh, there are a lot of people uh, who have written about these men, and you can look that kind of thing up and see for yourself some of the idiosyncrasies of their life, some of the the ways God used them. Um, So at this point, I'm not planning on going through the... the, uh, the real description of all of them unless God changes my mind. And I always like to leave it like that because he may say, that's what you think, now I want you to do this. Okay, and so I'll leave that as a reservation for the Lord. But I do want to talk about these first four because they to me, and I think rightly, are the main leaders of the group. And from them we learn several basic things that filter into the lives of the other people and therefore filter into our lives as well. So let's look at Simon first, right here in verse 2. Now, forgive me because I'm going to call him Peter almost every time because I just can't help myself. So he will become Peter. He's not yet Peter in the context of Matthew's writing. He's still Simon. So just forgive me as I I do that because I heard myself doing that earlier, and I don't mean to do that. But anyway... If you've watched the Chosen series, how many of you all have watched that? Okay. And the young people are supposed to say, we haven't watched the rest of them yet because we're watching those with Pastor Bruce and Miss Debbie on Sunday nights, right? But we probably know you probably snuck in there and watched them anyway. That's okay. But if you've watched the Chosen series, you've become pretty well acquainted with Simon. And he was the first one that kind of rose to the top there as they presented him in the series. Um, and that's really because he is the central figure of the 12. He is the leader among the other leaders. And that's the way any good group works. There are those who realize their giftednesses and their ability, and so they rise to the surface and become even leaders among the rest of the leaders. It doesn't mean that the other leaders don't have the same value. That's not to say this about Simon or the others, uh, but it just means that he, like many groups, rose to the occasion in a different way. And much of that was built around the personality that God had built into Simon. 
In fact, you know that he was a very dominant kind of personality. If we had the Myers-Briggs study here and we had all of you take that, take that study, uh, many of you probably have taken that or something like it, you may come out in this dominant personality category. And so you know what I'm talking about. He was a man who cut straight to the point. He just didn't mix his words much at all. But like many dominant personalities, Simon was not the bad guy. Sometimes dominant personalities can come across as the person that people don't want to listen to. But the reality is dominant people are those who often are the most passionate about what they believe. And that's why they're dominant. They, they don't want to just be heard, but they believe so much in what they're feeling that they can't help but not let it out. And I think Simon was this way. And we know these things because of how he treated uh, Jesus and even reacted to Jesus. If you've read the scriptures, you know that he continually asked questions. He was inquisitive. He wanted to know. I just got to know. He was that kind of person even gave the Lord advice at times. That's something none of us ever do, right? Yes, you've given the Lord advice. You've looked at your bills. You've looked at your life and you've said, Lord, this is what needs to happen. Now do it. So you understand that. In fact, there are times where in Scripture where Peter, excuse me, there I go, Simon gave commands to Jesus like in Matthew 16 when they were on their way to Jerusalem Peter was afraid. Simon was afraid. Now, again, in Matthew 16 now, he's become Peter. So I want to read this here. That's why it's referred to, he's referred to as Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's Jesus. Saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus had just told him, no, I have to go to Jerusalem. And Simon's saying, no, I don't want you to go to Jerusalem. They'll kill you there. And so he says this to him. You're not going to go, Jesus. No, the answer's no. You're not doing it. Imagine saying that to the Lord, right? There you go. You've done that. You know you have. And because of his commanding nature, interestingly, the Lord used Simon in a lot of ways, but also had to deal with him very sternly at times. In fact, Jesus referred to him as Satan in one particular situation. Imagine that. Imagine the Lord looking at you and saying, get behind me, Satan. Oof. Who would ever want to hear something like that? But that's what he said to him. When Peter tried to keep him from going in the previous verse that we just read, when he tried to keep him from going to Jerusalem, the Lord so sternly looked at him and said, you're acting for Satan right now. You're not doing what's best. You don't understand what's happening here. And so he really had to rebuke him. But in Peter's mind, he was doing what was necessary. He just loved the Lord and he wanted to protect him and wanted to keep him from any evil. Now, again, interestingly, these qualities made Peter a good leadership candidate. Not the negative things so much, but the things that he was most interested in because good leaders are engaged. They're people who care and, and want things to happen. And I'm talking about good. Let's put the adjective good there. I'm not just talking about people who call themselves leaders, but I'm talking about good leaders are people who care about the people that they lead. They want to make sure that they're cared for. Those of you who have been in the military will understand this well. One of the first things you're taught as a young officer is that make sure your men know you care about them, men and women. Remember when I was doing an ROTC course many, many, many years ago, 75, 80 years ago when I was in a freshman in college. I was, there was a guy who was a treadhead. That's how he referred to him. That that's not a, a negative term. You know that that was a tank guy. 
And um, I never forget, he says, guys, listen, when you get out in the field, you make sure you go last when it comes to the chow line. And you put those men and those people in front of you, and, and they'll be bringing you food to make sure that you're cared for. That's a good leader. I've never forgotten that. And I think that's the definition of a good leader, the person who's engaged in what's going on with the other people because they see things that others may not see. In fact, one of the places in Scripture we see that is when Peter makes his bold statement and then asks the question of the Lord. He says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? What Peter's doing there is he's inquisitive of the Lord and he's saying, I look at my life and I realize I've given up everything for you. So what's going to happen to us? Other people don't necessarily have those kind of qualities, but Peter did or Simon did. And too often he overstepped his bounds and made a fool of himself, as I've already brought out one thing. Uh, Another occasion was the night that he was taken into custody. He responded, or Jesus was taken into custody. This was just about before Jesus was crucified. You remember Peter's response or Simon's response? He took out his sword and he whacked off the ear of the high priest's servant, or the servant of the high priest, Malchus, thinking that that was the right thing to do. But the reality is he was not doing the right thing. He was fearful more than anything else. And so there are limits to where a leader can go and what leaders should do. It's powerful to do those kind of things and to stand in the gap, but we also have to be careful that we're not standing in a gap to create some kind of corruption or something that's going to get in the way of what the Lord wants us to do. Many times, many times, even in church life, Leaders can say to the Lord, this is what we're going to do, Lord. Come on and join us. Instead of humbly backing up and saying, Lord, what is it that you want from us? And we'll do it your way. So we could say with dominance, there also comes the need to learn submission. I think that was him. He had this personality. He had this quality that the Lord saw in him, built into him, was using or would use in him. But he also needed to teach Simon, this lesson of submissiveness. And people who lead need to remember that they are first servants. That's truly the definition of a godly leader. A leader really in general is that they're first servants of people. In fact, Jesus gave this amazing definition of leadership from his perspective, from God's perspective, and that's really all that matters. And I just want to read a portion of this to you from Matthew 23. Jesus is speaking to the crowds and to the disciples, Matthew tells us, saying about the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus is basically giving the boys a lesson about what wrong leadership is. And so he says to them, these guys tell you to do, but they don't observe it themselves. They, do, they say do it according to their deeds, but they don't do it themselves. They tie up heavy burdens around you, but they don't do the same thing as they're supposed to do. They love, verse 6, the place of honor. They love to be called rabbi. But Jesus says in verse 9, listen to this. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one of your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Look at verse 10 here. Do not be called leaders. Now, Jesus is not saying don't become leaders. But what he's trying to do is to show them the difference between a real leader and a false leader. And here he goes, watch. For one is your leader, that's me, Christ. I'm the leader. The greatest, verse 11, among you shall be your servant. 
Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, look, if you want to know what real leadership is, it's that you become the servant of other people. That's the definition of leadership in God's world, in his kingdom. And when you become a servant of others, and they know that, they will be more than willing to follow and to listen to what you have to say. That's what Jesus is teaching them. And Peter must have learned this because after Jesus is gone, he writes the letter of 1 Peter and he begins to talk about the need for submission to authority. Now, I imagine when Peter was writing this through the power of the Spirit, he's thinking in his mind, I had to learn this. This is a tough lesson for me because I wanted to take charge and I wanted to be in control of everything that was happening to Jesus. But the Lord taught me that I first need to be a servant. And so evidently he must have learned that as he wrote, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And I won't take time to preach through all that, but you'll understand if you read that letter. So as a leader, he also needed another thing, which was real courage. I already touched on this, so I'll just say this briefly. When he cut off the high priest's ear, that wasn't real courage. That was fear. And often what we profess to be courage in leadership is really reacting out of fear. But real courage is being patient in the midst of difficult situations. Being willing to go through the difficult situations even though they're not fun and comfortable. And I understand that well. It's keeping silent when others want to just bark real loud and really want to show themselves. Sometimes it means saying what needs to be said. Often that's true, but in the right kind of way, in a loving way, a gracious way, even if they don't like it, but knowing it's best for them. Why? Because you're serving that person and you know that this may be what they need to hear that's best for them. And again, evidently Peter learned that well also, such as when he and John were arrested after Jesus had left. This was after Jesus was gone. You remember they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus again. And instead, Peter responds now in Acts chapter 4, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Courage then, the real kind of godly courage took over. And in a not subdued, but in a quieted kind of a way, Simon had gone from this bold, in-your-face kind of person to a person who said, we're going to do what the Lord commands us to do. You do what you think is right, but we're going to follow the Lord. And that is a settled confidence. So in the midst of all of his impetuous living, the Lord saw in him a great man of value and leadership, uh, which did come out because the Lord eventually used him to become one of the leaders of the the pillar of the church of Christ. And Peter would learn true servanthood because tradition says he was also crucified. But before he was crucified, it was said, or it has been said in tradition, that he was made to watch his wife be crucified. And all the while, instead of reaching for a sword to kill all of the Roman soldiers, He just simply said to her over and over again, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. If you can imagine such a scene as a man having to watch his wife go through something like that. And then, out of an act of humility and love for the Lord, he believed that it was not right for him to be crucified like the Lord was, and so he requested to be 
crucified upside down because he felt so unworthy. As a man that was greatly changed, and God used him in, in a marvelous way. Now, the next three men are the ones that we'll just talk briefly about because not a lot is said about them, and I'll just draw some, do my best to draw some application from these few thoughts here. And that is Andrew, James, and John. Um, these guys became the leaders, like I was talking about, behind Peter. Again, it doesn't make them more valuable, just different, useful in different ways, and that's the way you should see yourself. Each of us is a leader, aren't we? Right? You may say, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you are. And you need to start thinking of yourself as a leader. You are leading someone. Somebody's watching you. Whether it's a grandchild or a spouse or a coworker or somebody, somebody's watching you. When you put the name Christ on yourself, you become a leader of people. And they're watching. And so we would do well to listen carefully to some of what's happening with these men as God changed them. And so Andrew was a man of humility. In fact, his name, interestingly, means manly. I thought that's kind of funny because uh, true manliness, according to the world, is so, well, true manliness, according to God, is so opposite what the world thinks. Kind of like what Peter showed himself to be or Simon showed himself to be. Um, we have this man named Andrew who is the brother of Simon and his name is actually called or referred to as Manly. In fact, Jesus had just described in his definition of leadership also what manliness is. True manliness is not taking the bull by the horns and making everybody get out of the way and driving people. True manliness is facing life as a servant. And I'm talking about from God's perspective. It doesn't mean that you become a wishy-washy nobody. But what it does is it says you belong to the living God and so you have the truth in your heart that can be shared with others. And so be a servant to others in confidence knowing that God is leading you. And I'm talking to my own heart when I say this. As already mentioned here, Andrew was Simon's brother, but he had a different personality, and we see that in very little written about him, but he was a follower of John the Baptist, very sensitive to the things of God, became a disciple of Jesus after John had said, Jesus is on the scene now. He gets Peter to start following Jesus, or at least it's believed that Andrew was very instrumental in getting his brother to follow Jesus, who was also a follower of John the Baptist. But as I said, not much is really mentioned about Andrew, which is kind of startling to me. In fact, the Gospels, Matthew, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only mention him in the 12. That's it. It's John who mentions him a little bit more, like specifically when he is recognized for his faith, when Jesus is about to feed the 5,000 of one of the two, it's the situation where the little boy has five loaves and two fishes. It's Andrew who points him out <clears throat> and says, look, this little guy has this. And it wasn't the kind of thing that we would think of typically as, well, all we have is this. That certainly was the case. But Andrew seems to be the guy who says, but here's what we have, showing that if the Lord takes it, then there will be great use come from it. And that's exactly what happened. <clears throat> and so from this little bit of inf uh, information about him, not only do we find out that kind of thing, but he was a man of humility, evidently, because nothing was written about him being concerned about being in the shadow of his brother. And tell me how many kids' parents fight over who's dominant of the siblings. 
I mean, it happens in homes time and time again. But at least in the home of Simon and Andrew, that was not the case with Andrew. There seems to be no indication of resentment on his heart. Again, making him a great example of servanthood. Because again, the true servant doesn't look to be the greatest. They're servants. That's what they do. They don't need to be on the top of the pile. They don't need to stand out among other people. They just do what their master tells them to do and they're content with it. Always faithful. Always dependable. Always there. Never creating problems. Listen to this. Always showing up just to do what needs to be done and never letting ambition get the best of them. That's the true servant heart. And there are several of you that are like that, and I'm glad to say that. I'm encouraged to say that. It does my heart great uh, to, to know that there are those of you who are great servants of the Lord, and you just always do your job quietly. There are some of you that just get things done, and we never have to remind you. We never have to say anything to you about what needs to be done. You just show up and you do it. You don't cause problems. You don't look to cause problems. You're just content with what God has made you. And according to tradition, that was Andrew, and Andrew displayed that in his dying days because he was crucified as well, feeling himself unworthy like his brother to be crucified like his Lord was, and so he was crucified on a diagonal cross uh, instead of the cross that the Lord was crucified on. And I understand there were... Lots of different studies about what the cross looked like. But to the best of our understanding, this is the kind of thing that we understand. So let's look at James here very briefly, very similar. He's listed first before John. They were both brothers. James was probably listed first because he was the oldest. That seemed to be typically the case. And as you break it all down, and we could spend a lot of time on all that. Some theologians have done that about why the brothers were listed the way they were. Uh, But like many of the other disciples, there's really little known about him other than that, except for the fact that he was and his brother John were known as the sons of Zebedee. You saw this in the series, right? They're fishing in the boat with their father, Zebedee, who evidently has a very lucrative business or at least some lucrative uh, work to it because Mark tells us that his father or their father had uh, servants in the trade. And so... In thinking about that, let me just bring out one thing that is not in the text of Scripture, but to me it seems to make sense. And that is, if Zebedee was lucrative or a wealthy or well-to-do businessman, then perhaps James grew up in a pretty well-cared-for family. Meaning that at times, like children in our culture today who grow up in well-to-do families there's a tendency to have less regard for other people. In other words, there's a selfishness that takes over. And you know as well as I do in our culture as we watch our young people and we have come out of this changing situation of life. Uh, Many of you grew up in times where there was no cell phone, there was no phone, you had the party lines. You remember that? And you spent all your days out in the fields and you had to get mama to call you when it was time to come in. Today it's hard to get kids to go out. Because there's so much to keep them inside, right? And so more that comes to us often causes a selfishness. What do you mean we don't have this or we don't have that? And so there's been a change in our cultural dynamic in a big way. But I'm just simply saying the common thread in my mind seems to be maybe James had little regard for others or maybe less mercy. Let's put it that way. And here's where I'm going with this. 
You remember that there was a time where Jesus was traveling into Samaria. And the Samaritans were people that were haters of the Jews and the Jews hated them because the Samaritans had interbred with the Jews and the, and the Gentiles and, and that was not to be in Jewish living. And so there was a real hatred among them. And so James and his brother John get so upset when they're not allowed to lodge in a particular place. They look to the Lord and say, just call down thunder and lightning and pulverize these people basically. And so the Lord then calls them from that moment on sons of thunder. You're the guys that wanted to destroy everything. Well, why did they feel that way? Well, it's because they didn't like what was happening. And so the best reaction was, God, you have the power. Destroy these people. And I know you've never felt that way. I've never felt that way in our culture. Like you watch what's going on in the world today and you just instantly say, Love, 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 love. No, a lot of times you feel the wrath of God and you want God to come down in a bolt of lightning and destroy everything that's going on. And that's our natural tendency. And so in this, though, I think the Lord was teaching them also a very valuable lesson that patience and sensitivity is imperative to the lost. And we've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to go through this much. The point is, how will the lost repent and be saved if they're not given the opportunity to hear the truth. If you and I come at them with a sword and demands, they're going to tend to put their shield up and they'll never hear you about your God of mercy and your God who loves them. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that and that there's not a time for that kind of speak. It is necessary. We have to remember again that the world is blind and so our Resolve should be to show them love and concern while speaking the truth always in love. And there's lots of examples of that. James's life ended before Scripture was complete. And we know that according to Acts chapter 12. That's not a subject for debate. Herod had him executed by the sword. He never saw the finish of the work and the, the, um, the church grow to what it could become uh, because he was taken out. But just before that, this is very interesting. I read this from one commentator who wrote this, and I'll just quote them. They said, When James had been sentenced to death and was about to be beheaded, the Roman soldier who guarded him was so impressed with his courage and constancy of spirit that he knelt at the apostles' feet begging forgiveness for the rough treatment he had given him and for his part in the execution. James is said to have lifted the man up, embraced and kissed him, and said, Peace, my son. Peace to you and the pardon of your faults. The soldier is said to have been so moved by James's compassion that he publicly confessed Christ and was beheaded alongside the apostle. Now, I don't know if that's true. You may be able to find that in your own studies and tell me whether that's true or not. But boy, it sure makes a good bedtime story. If it's true, then it shares with us the change that the Lord made in James's life who went from the thunder son to having such compassion on his own executor, if you will, that the man would see the love of James so much that he also would give his life to Christ. A far bigger change than what we would think normally in a person's life. His brother John was also used greatly of the Lord, became second to Paul, really, the greatest of writers of the New Testament. In fact, he wrote the Gospel of John. He would write the first, second, and third letters of John. 
and then he would write the book of Revelation. And so uh, even though James may have been the more vocal one, John was right there alongside of him, and I've already brought that up, as a son of thunder, being just as impatient evidently, perhaps intolerant of others, and needing to learn the greatest of all subjects really is not just servanthood but love. Servants are motivated by love, and John would become the master of that as he would write the letter of 1 John. Now, to be fair, Scripture does tell us not to follow those who have a belief contrary to Scripture, and that does tell us that over and over again, but uh, that's really the only reason. We're not to divide in our relationship with other people based on anything other than what they say or who they say Christ to be. And John was the one who gave us a lot of that information in the text of Scripture to help us to see the truth. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write something very similar in our reaching out to the lost, and that would be in Romans 10:14. How will they call on him whom they've not believed? And that's not all of it. He says, how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear if there's not a preacher to tell them? And so you may say to yourself, well, Paul's talking to the preachers of the world. And I'm simply saying that no, yes, and no, yes, he is. But at the same time, as much as you are called to be leaders because you follow Christ, you are also a preacher. You're a proclaimer of the truth. And your job as much as mine is to tell others about the love that Christ has for you. How are they going to hear if you don't tell them? I can't physically go to every house in Charlottesville and proclaim the gospel. You have to do that. And that's what Paul is saying. And John had to learn that. And indeed, he did learn these things. And he learned them so well, as I said, he wrote about it in his first letter. If you want a beautiful description of what real love is, read the letter of 1 John. It's only five chapters in a beautiful study. And in fact, if you're paying attention to the world at all, you know the world makes its own definition of love. And you know that, which is, don't judge me. Real love is not judging. You hear that all the time. Don't tell me what I can and can't do or what I can and can't believe. That's for you. This is for me. Blah, 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 that kind of thing. The truth is, beloved, God, if God is God, and we know that he is, then all he says in his word must be heeded to. You can't make a God a different God than he is in the scripture. All of scripture gives us the totality of who God is. And to believe anything else is to lead people down a road of destruction. To come up with any other idea of who God is other than what he gives us in his description in the scriptures is to give them a philosophy or a path of life which will take them literally away from God instead of to God. And so when anyone is studying the scriptures and they have questions about what God says about this and that, you take them back to what God is, which is love, but that love defines very clearly why he is also a God of judgment. His very fab fabric is holiness, which is built upon love, which is the, the, the foundation of why he must judge because true love does not let unrighteousness go free. And so it has to be a full circle. But the, the demonic world and our sinfulness and our natures will say, I don't want a God like that. That's not the God that I like. And my only thought to that is, then you can't have the God of the Bible. You have to create another God. 
who is not the God that the Bible proclaims for us. Jesus became the example for us of who the Father is. As he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Jesus is also the very same one who judged in the, New, the Old Testament and who John will write about in Revelation at the end who will come in to judge everyone who has rejected him and has loved themselves more than they have the truth. And so John had to learn all these things. And we know from history that ultimately he was put on an isle, the island of Patmos, sentenced there to die. But again, that's where he wrote this infamous book, the book of Revelation, to give to us clearly the final plight of all the ungodly and the eternal joy of all who belong to the Lord. Now, just summarizing all this, is that what I think really is important from these men's lives is that we understand that God takes us where we are. I've already mentioned that last week, but I want to just say it again. I understand the human tendency, which is usually, not always, because some of you don't think like this, but usually I can't, which really means I won't when we're being honest. And we say I can't because we have these inward feelings about our own failures and our own weaknesses and all the things that cause us problems and we just think, no, somebody else should be, somebody else should do. Somebody else should. You, you just fill in the blanks. But the Lord is saying, hey, I know your weaknesses. I know your failures. I know your struggles. But when I saved you, I called you to follow me. And that following means we don't look to our own weaknesses. We look to his strengths. Amen? Amen. And we have to keep that in mind, beloved. Beloved. Because the natural tendency of the human soul in its sinfulness is to do nothing. It wants the easy street. It wants the easy life. It wants to be able to say, been there, done that. Okay, that has its place. Understand that. Some things we just physically can't do anymore. Sometimes we just can't do something else because we're exhausted mentally and emotionally. But the motive of our heart should always be because Jesus died for me, I want to serve him with my final breath. We can do that in our hearts, but the Lord still says to us, but you can still be my servant in the way that I give you to be my servant. Now, I can't fill in the blank where all that, with all of what that would be because you live your own life. Nobody knows your life like you do other than God himself. But that's the point. God will take you where you are and he will make you into what he wants you to be. But it's going to take some work. It took these guys, it took the Lord three years to get them where he wanted them through a lot of trials and errors. And we see one of them, Judas, at the end, never really followed in the first place. The Lord knew that too. But he had a purpose for him. And God has a purpose for you. Don't listen to the enemy tell you anything other than God loves you and he has a plan for you to use you. Now, follow him. Don't follow your own sinful tendencies. That's really the point of looking into these guys' lives. They were no different than you and I are. No different. Absolutely no different. If I'm convinced if the 12 of them were sitting right here in these rows, 
they would be turning around saying to you, let me tell you how I saw myself and how God could never in a thousand years use me until Jesus came along and made them what he wanted them to be. Okay? All right. Well, this is a great place for us to have our communion time, and so we want to stop now and remember the Lord in all that he has done for us. It is through communion, beloved, that the Lord reminds us of our weaknesses. It really is. He reminds us through the act of communion so much our weaknesses that he puts himself on display in our place because he knows we can't do it. Now you say, well, I thought this was just talking about salvation. doesn't matter what we're talking about. It is talking about salvation. But it's also him saying to us, without me, you can do nothing. So Paul would remind the church just this, as much as we commonly remember this every month, he says of himself, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. Okay, that's the context. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. It's for you. I came for you. He didn't have to come, but he did it for you. So when you take part in this little cracker, remember... The Lord gave his body for you. So take part in that if you will. And then in verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new covenant. It's a covenant of grace. A covenant where the Lord himself fulfilled all the responsibility of sinful humanity and took the price of our sin upon himself. And basically, in my own paraphrase of this, Paul is saying, if you believe what the Lord has done, then do this. Drink this cup. And every time you drink this cup, no matter when that is, you remember the sacrifice the Lord made for you. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to write a Bible so people could have a bunch of stuff to argue about? No. He did that because he wanted you to be with him in heaven. And he has a plan for you here. So don't forget what he's done for you. So take part in the juice, if you will, if that's you. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for... Uh, the life of these men, uh, the others that um, were used of you in such an amazing way as we watched their failures and their trials and their struggles and, and their seemingly in, uh, never-ending ability to confuse the situation, to make things harder than they needed to be. And all you ever asked for them was to just be servants. And we thank you, Lord. That's all you really ask of us, is to not to be the greatest or the best or the whatever, but to just follow you. So, Lord, the big thing, though, that we need is not to just understand that, but to actually act upon it. 
And so I pray that as we leave this place this morning, we'll go and we'll act upon being servants. For whatever that looks like, whatever's put into our minds and our hearts, we'll just do it. Some last week took the flowers off of the altar behind me and they went around to three or four families and just blessed some shut-ins. Praise, the, praise your name for that. They just saw a need and took advantage of it. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever you put in front of us this week, you'll, you'll do it through us. You'll give us the, the wherewithal to act upon it. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake and all God's people said, Amen. Lord's blessings to you all. You are dismissed.